He was answering a question during his annual Thanksgiving call to the US military. I, I, it's going to be a very hard thing to concede because we know there was massive fraud. I'm going to go with another question. Go ahead. So if, if the Electoral College does elect President-elect Joe Biden, are you not going to leave this building? Just so you... Uh, certainly I will. Certainly I will. And you know that. Well, let's speak to our correspondent in Washington, Helen Ann Smith. He's nudging towards a concession there, reluctantly by the sound of it, Helen Ann. Yeah, it's just the latest in a series of hints that the president might be accepting the reality of the... It's just the latest in a series of hints that the, that the president is starting to understand reality, that it's the media who choose the president, that once the media have called the election, that's all there is to it. There's no electoral college. There's no certification by the states or by the federal governments. There's no democracy. It's the media who call the election and we've already called it. There's no courts. There's no legislators. We know how it works. The media calls the election. We tell you who's president. And Donald Trump is starting to figure that out. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Helen Ann. Thank you, Helen Ann Smith, for that wonderful report. You set the record straight. If only the president would listen to you and to us, the media. It's Friday, November 27th, 2020, and this is Zero Politics. Well, my friends, it's been a crazy couple of weeks and I had to stop I had to stop recording the show because I was well for multiple reasons. One of them, I was very much deep in thought about this election and the outcome because it was not what I expected and I really do believe after having studied so many I've read hundreds of articles now and now I've read the the uh the lawsuits, the the complaints that have been brought by Sidney Powell, which, by the way, very interesting. The media, they had typos in them at the very beginning. The very top line, the very top line of the uh, the suits in both cases had typos. And it's so obvious that she did it on purpose. No lawyer of her pedigree. Okay. And we're talking, she's top notch. She's been a federal attorney. She is... She's top notch. And what she did was she tweeted out a little tweet that was a hint. She said, no extra charge for the typos. No extra charge for the typos. They did it on purpose because they knew the media would ignore the lawsuits full of hundreds of pages, both taken together in both cases, Michigan and and Georgia, hundreds of pages of evidence that there was fraud in the election. I'll get to that in a minute. The media wanted to ignore that, but they put typos in the header, which is the most obvious and ridiculous thing. And they weren't even simple typos. They were ridiculous typos. And it's so obvious the reason they did it was because they wanted the media to cover the story and the media did cover it. And how did they cover it? They said, Sidney Powell brings uh, typo riddled complaints, you know, to the court. Yes, they reported exactly. And I'm just, I know that it was done on purpose. There's no possible way that someone of her caliber would make the kind of mistakes she made on the very cover page of the lawsuit. So it's, um, I'm already laughing about it and enjoying myself because one, I already knew if I'll share a link, if you're listening in whatever app you're listening in, go to the show notes and you know how to go to the show notes in your app. If you don't know how to do that, by the way, you're missing out. It's a very valuable thing to know. Whatever app you're listening to, the podcasting app allows you to look at the show notes for the show. And you'll have a list of uh, links there that I have for you. And I'll make sure that the first link is to the page that has a database, very easy to scan down, a database full of hundreds of individual cases of allegations of fraud, 
with the source material to back them up. And in many cases, it's eyewitnesses. In many cases, it's eyewitnesses who have sworn affidavits. Um, in other cases, it's um, articles that have been written you know, by journalists in the press and, um, and so on. So it's all sourced. And I'm not saying that all of those allegations are true. What I'm saying is, there looks to me, I've scanned through it. I haven't put it into an Excel spreadsheet yet, so I don't know if it's hundreds or thousands, but it's at least hundreds of allegations, individual allegations of individual acts of fraud. And the the list is so long that I've I haven't been through all of them myself. And I don't I don't think the media is going to go through all of those, but I'm telling you. As it pertains to court, the, 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 all of this information, all of this uh, evidence is going to be presented. And right now, so what's happening is the media has stopped saying that there's no evidence because they can't say that anymore and keep a straight face. The fact is, evidence that is allowed in court is things like eyewitness testimony. They have that. Things like um, mathematical anomalies um, presented by experts who are saying you know what, there's certain mathematical probabilities and anomalies that took place in this election that indicate fraud. They have that. Okay, they have all sorts of uh, news reports and stuff about stolen flashcards, uh, you know, and laptops from uh, different precincts and so on. They have all of this information. And this is all considered evidence in a court of law. And by the way, eyewitness testimony is considered direct evidence. It's a lot of people think, oh yeah, these, you know, they got some people, some eyewitnesses saying they saw this or that, and it's not really. It doesn't really matter if it doesn't matter if the eyewitness can prove their case or not. Okay, that will come out in court. The point is that is considered evidence in a court of law, which means the court will have to look at it. It's, it has to be addressed. And with the media over the last couple of weeks has been saying baseless, there's no, there's no evidence whatsoever, but it's, it's been lies. Because for weeks now, we've seen people coming forward under penalty of perjury, swearing under oath that their account of what they witnessed is true. And with that being the case, it's just too difficult to just discount that. A court can't discount that. Okay. Now, some of the court cases that have been thrown out over the last week or two were actually court cases that were not presented by Trump's legal defense team. They were presented by other individuals before the election. So you may have heard about dozens of cases being thrown out. Those weren't cases by uh, Trump's legal defense team. And many listening to this probably already know that, but there might be some who don't. Uh, those were not brought forward by Trump's defense team. They were brought forward by um, different individuals who are alleging various, not even fraud, but just irregularities and issues with ballots being sent out and so on. And uh, some of them were thrown out. A lot of them were thrown out on standing issues and whatnot, not having legal standing. So those aren't those are really irrelevant. So when you hear the news media, say, oh, dozens of cases have already been thrown out. They don't have any evidence. Those are really irrelevant to what's been presented uh, yesterday by Sidney Powell, the almost 200 pages worth of documented evidence uh, in two claims, um, two complaints, I'm sorry, brought in Georgia and Michigan. And I assume more states are, are on the way. But I've been reading through these, and wow, I got to tell you, the evidence is insane. I mean, it is stuff I didn't even know about. And I thought I knew. I thought I was keeping up with the latest information. Nope. I'm just, I was looking through these, reading through the evidence, and I couldn't read through all of it. Um, because a lot of times, I, as I'm reading, I stop and I go, okay, I got to investigate that myself and see if I can come up with that same information. And uh, it's the, the, it was more than I thought. She had way more evidence than I thought. And I'm talking documented Images, pictures, uh, information from, I already knew the Dominion, Dominion voting machines uh, could switch votes. Uh, they're actually designed to allow administrators to move votes around. And uh, it's actually very easy to rig an election uh, as an administrator of one of those systems. Very easy. 
And I'm not even sure if it happened at that level of an administrator at, say, a precinct or a accounting facility. It could have been at a more centralized level. Um, and some of the I, I had I had put aside the uh, the theories about scorecard, which is apparently uh, a CIA program that allows for the rigging of elections. And it turns out she has photographic evidence in there about scorecard being used. Uh, and I'm just, I don't even know. I, I set that aside. I was like, I think that's probably a conspiracy theory. Turns out, and I, I say that in a, in a negative sense, conspiracy theory, sometimes conspiracy theories are true. But, you know, I thought, okay, then maybe that's just a little bit off the wall. I'm not going to push that. And it turns out there's evidence for that too. So, I mean, I honestly buckle up because I think we're in for a long ride the next couple of weeks. Uh, I'm not even going to begin to delve in on this show, on this episode, into all the details of the fraud. I'm not sure. There's a part of me that's just not even sure if I want to do that because it's not really the point of this show. The point of this show is really to talk about logical inconsistencies in the partisan press and the and politicians and their arguments, you know, and, and to deconstruct uh, what they're saying from a point of view of uh, logical, critical thinking. And... You know, this doesn't really have a lot to do with that, but I love it. This is for me. I started studying election fraud back in uh, the early 2000s, and uh, I just I've never I've always thought that there was some fraud of of some kind. But what happened this time in this election? What it looks like is that Trump got so many votes that they had to pull out all the stops early on. They thought, okay, we can do this with just limited fraudulent activity. But then as it was clear towards the end of the night that Trump had won literally a record number of votes, they had to pull out all the stops and bring in thousands, hundreds of thousands of basically illegal. Some of them, it appears, were printed uh, fake ballots. Some of them, it appears, were just mailed out ballots that... um, were uh, collected and used um, where there's no down ballot votes. It's just a vote for Biden and that's it. All kinds of indications of fraudulent activity. So I'm not going to get into it all here, like I said, but uh, if, you, if you're open-minded and, and you're really honest and you're objective, and again, those of you who know me know that I don't have a, a dog in the hunt. I, I'm, I would love to cover Biden and talk about him and the press and and so on over the next four years, because you know there's a part of me that's kind of bored with with Trump, um, you know, in, in a sense. But uh, I don't know. At the same time, with the media, it's always fun. It's always fun with Trump because they are so full of shit when it comes to Trump that it's just so. There's always something to talk about with Biden. Um, I could criticize the right a lot more, you know, over the next four years, and I would enjoy that. But I think in the end, I think for this show, it'd probably be more fun to have Trump actually win this election. Um, Not only would talking about that issue be interesting, but I think having Trump another four years in office would be be great um, coverage or would be great uh, fodder for a podcast like this. So we'll see. I, I think what I might start doing is just uh, touching on a little bit of the uh, the allegations here and there during the show. Uh, but right now I'm going to start out with uh, something else entirely. Let's talk about some, one of my favorite things to talk about, of course, is uh, fact-checking. Because oftentimes fact-checkers are just, well, they're completely full of it. They they Sometimes they're just, they outright lie. Sometimes they present f- factual inaccuracies. Most of the time, they use strawman attacks or red herrings of some kind in order to divert attention. Uh, and it's, they love the straw man because they can change one word in a sentence and change and make the argument easier for them to prove ch- or change the argument entirely. And that's what they did recently. And let's talk about that for a minute because it's really interesting. So CNN did a fact check of one of the claims of uh, fraud, one of the allegations related to Dominion Dominion voting systems. And what they said was that 
They said Powell claimed that widely used voting machines from the election technology company Dominion Voting Systems featured software created, quote, at the direction of former Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez to swing his own election results, and that the company has ties to the Clinton Foundation and Soros. Now, here's the interesting part. Notice what they do. That's the opening paragraph. And then notice what they say in in the next paragraph. They say, facts first. None of this is true. Okay, so they just said, none of this is true. None of what? None of what they just said. What did they just say? Let's look at it again. That the company has ties to the Clinton Foundation and Soros, George Soros. Okay? But watch what they do in the next sentence. None of this is true. Dominion has no corporate ties with the Venezuelans, uh, with Venezuela, the Clinton Foundation, or Soros. You see what they did there? They, t- they made it sound like in the first paragraph, what they're going to prove is that there's no connection between Clint- the Clinton Foundation and Soros or Venezuela. But in the very next sentence, they add the word corporate ties, corporate ties. And then in the remainder of the article, they argue against corporate ties. And what's fascinating is in the remainder of the article, they admit that their opening paragraph is BS because in the remainder of the article, they go on to talk about the ties between George Soros, the Clinton Foundation, and Venezuela. They admit to it. Let me read it to you. Powell and other Trump allies have tried to... Okay, I'm going to skip past that. Let's get to the juicy part. Okay, Smartmatic was founded in Florida by two Venezuelans. Okay, so there's the first tide of Venezuela. Okay, remember at the beginning, they, they talk about, they said that uh, there's no corporate ties with Venezuela. Now that's interesting. They said corporate ties. Well, here's something they're not going to talk about in this article. It says Smartmatic was founded in Florida by two Venezuelans and did, uh, and it says, and did provide election technology to the Venezuelan government. Okay. What they don't tell you, by the way, is that that company, by those two Venezuelans, got its seed funding from the Venezuelan government. It wasn't as though they were just in Florida hanging out. They were going to school in Florida. They were from Venezuela, going to school in Florida. They vote, started writing voting software. We don't know why, but, you know, it sounds like maybe they already had an idea and maybe they were working with someone because... They got $200,000 in funding from a government program in Venezuela. Venezuela, like our government, has uh, different groups within the government. For example, the CIA does this here. Um, The CIA will give seed funding to companies. In fact, they gave seed funding to Facebook. So you will find that uh, if you do the research that $200,000 was given to Smartmatic uh, by the Venezuelan government. They go on to say, no, I'm going to skip over a bunch of this and get to the next part. Okay, so there's the connection with Venezuela. All right, so they admit there's a connection with Venezuela. They also don't really talk about the fact that um, that they did, it was the election in Venezuela in 2006 where... Smartmatic, and I'm not sure if they were called that at the time, because it's an interesting. There's an interesting history with Smartmatic, Dominion, Sequoia, um, and even another company whose name I can't remember now. The way that those companies have interacted and bought each other out and um, sold the underlying software or not sold the underlying software, and you'll find that the Smartmatic software is the software that's still being used in Dominion uh, and. In uh, was being used in Sequoia. So anyways, that's all kind of an aside. They do admit that there were ties to Venezuela. But the question is, is were there corporate ties? See, because that's the, the, the argument they're actually trying to make. First, they say, there's no ties to Venezuela, the Clinton Foundation, or George Soros. But then they say, there's no ties, no corporate ties. And, and that's what they're focusing on here. Because they've already admitted that that there were ties between Venezuela uh, and the founding of uh, Smartmatic in in that the two founders were Venezuelan. And what they don't tell you is that not only that, but they received a seed of funding from the Venezuelan government. And then at the end, well, I'll just read uh, the last uh, two paragraphs. 
Neither Dominion nor Smartmatic have corporate ties to the Clinton or Clintons or Soros, a major Democratic donor. While Dominion did agree to donate its technology to its emerging democracies, there's an emerging emerging democracies program that's part of the uh, Clinton Foundation. So they admit to that here. They say they did uh, they did work with the Clinton Foundation in their emerging democracies program which was run by the Clinton Foundation in 2014, according to the Foundation's website. Dominion said in its statement that it has no company ownership relationship with the Foundation. So see what they do there. They say, okay, yeah, so the Clinton Foundation was using Dominion voting machines in other countries, and I'm going to suggest in part to rig elections perhaps, but leaving that aside, that's not the point here. The point here is that yeah, the Clinton Foundation did have ties with Smartmatic and Dominion, and they admit it in the article, but then they say, but there's no company ownership, okay? <laughs> okay, that's not, that's not the allegation that's made. No one is arguing that it's owned by the Clinton Foundation or that Hugo Chavez owns the company. Hugo Chavez is, is dead, but, you know, that's not the claim that's being made. So what they do is they craft their sentences and they craft their argument so that they can make it sound like they're disproving the initial point, which is just that there's ties to Soros, the Clinton Foundation, and um, Hugo Chavez and the Venezuelan government. No one's saying really any more than that. There are these ties. Um, but what they've done is they've, they've tried to solidify their argument a little bit more by adding some qualifiers to it. Okay, so there's no company ownership of the foundation through the, um, through the Clinton Foundation. Okay, fine, but that's not what anybody's arguing. Then the next sentence says, and while the chairman of the board of Smartmatic's parent company is also, the board of the found, uh, is also on the board of the foundation run by Soros, the Open Society Foundation, which is George Soros's big foundation, um, it says Soros himself is not involved in either company. So they admit that there's a connection. George Soros, by the way, Lord Malik something, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. He, he is like George Soros's right-hand man. They've been working together for decades. And where, basically, wherever one guy is, the other one is. You know, they're both always working together. And the, uh, he happens to uh, sit on the foundation uh, as a chairman with Soros, the Open Society Foundation. So there's a connection, is what I'm saying. And they admit to the connection here. But again, they say, yeah, but George Soros isn't a chairman on the board of Smartmatic. Okay, all right. But nobody argued that. Nobody said George Soros was on the board of Smartmatic. They just said there's a connection. And notice again at the beginning, the very beginning, what they're going to claim to disprove is they're going to claim to disprove that there is no connection between Venezuela, the Clinton Foundation, or Soros. They say none of this is true. After saying, and that the company has ties to the Clinton Foundation and Soros, they say none of this is true. But then for the remainder of the article, what they do is they qualify themselves so that they can, they qualify the argument so much that now they're arguing against a straw man. And when you're arguing against a straw man, well, it can fool people, trick people, makes them think that you've actually argued um, against a proposition you haven't argued against, or that you've proven a proposition that you actually haven't proven. When in fact, they've proven the opposite. They actually contradict themselves in the article here because they, they say that they say that there is a connection between Venezuela. There is a connection with George Soros through his through Lord Malik, uh, who uh, is, is shares sits on both foundations as uh, a chairman for both foundations. I, I don't know if he's considered a chairman, but he's uh, on the board of both foundations, uh, both the foundation run by Soros and the Smart uh, Smartmatic. Um, and then also the Clinton Foundation worked with them in 2014 and used their voting machines as part of one of their initiatives. So th there is a connection between these three things that they claim there's no connection to. But then they say, yeah, but it's not a corporate tie. It's not a corporate connection. But that's not the, that's not the point. That's not the argument being made. They would have been much better off just using the argument <laughs> that I would that I would make, which is so what? Yeah, there's ties between Soros and the Clinton Foundation and, and Venezuela with Smartmatic and Dominion. But so what? What does that prove? 
in and of itself, that doesn't prove anything. People keep throwing around Soros's name as though every time you mention his name, it means there's evil taking place. It's like, you know, my cousin knows uh, George Soros's son or something like that. Therefore, I must be corrupt. You know, connecting someone's name or saying there's a connection, a tie with Soros doesn't immediately make everything you're doing evil. It's an illogical argument. And all they have to do is use logic and just say, you haven't proven anything by saying that the Clinton Foundation used their voting machines in um, countries where the elections, for whatever reason, because the country's poor, because it had just gone through a revolution, that sort of thing, maybe those countries weren't able to provide for their own electoral process and machines very well, so the Clinton Foundation came in and helped them out. Do I think that's suspect? Yes, I do. But leaving that aside, it doesn't in and of itself mean that there was fraud. It doesn't in and of itself mean that there's something nefarious happening. They could have just made that argument. It would have been a much shorter article, you know, because they could have just said, so what? That's a non sequitur. Claiming that there's connections between these people and Smartmatic or Dominion doesn't prove anything. You need actual evidence. You can't just um, throw around people's names and use kind of ad hominem and guilt by association type illogical arguments. But instead, what they do is they actually help their opponent's argument by citing the fact that, yes, all these people are connected to Smartmatic and Dominion. They are, in fact, connected. They might not be on the board. They might not have ownership of the company, but they're definitely connected. Who do the Clintons go to when they want to help help a foreign co- uh, country hold an election? Well, they go to Dominion. Who happens to be connected to George Soros through George Soros's right-hand man? Everyone knows that this guy is... George Soros's right-hand man, basically. Well, it's, you know, this does not help their case to admit to this stuff. But, uh, but they do, and it makes, it makes for good fodder for a show like this because you can tear it to pieces rather easily and show how they're, again, using... Um, the, the big major part of this, the big logical fallacy here is the, the uh, straw man argument. First, they tell you in the opening paragraph that there's no connection. And then later on, they start arguing, well, there is a connection, but it's not a corporate connection or it's not an ownership connection. You know, so they change the argument as they're uh, as they're making it, which is just completely ridiculous. And I don't know how CNN gets away with this stuff. Well, they don't really get away with it because there are a lot of people calling it out, (laughs) but I don't know how they continue to keep these articles up on their website. I really don't. I don't. I, when you logic check an article, when you show how that's logically fallacious and how they've contradicted themselves in that article, they should take it down. I don't understand why it's still up. Let's, let's talk about something else. So that's just going to frustrate me. Actually, before I move on, let me mention the New York Times published in 2006 an article, U.S. Investigates Voting Machines with Venezuela Ties. If you do a Google search, you'll find the New York Times article. The federal government, quote, is investigating the takeover last year of a leading American manufacturer of electronic voting systems by a small software company that has been linked to the leftist Venezuelan government of President Hugo Chavez. It's interesting that back in 2006, they were talking about this in the New York Times, and today the New York Times is saying, no, 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 this is odd. It's a conspiracy theory to think that there were any ties to Hugo Chavez or Venezuela, uh, you know, that they might have used these, uh, these voting machines to rig the election. No, it's all conspiracy nonsense. Well, they were covering it back then, and they, you know what? There are, and I didn't mention this at the top of the show, but one of the, one of the circumstantial pieces of evidence, and by the way, let me say this, in, a, in the cases that are being in the cases that are being brought by Sidney Powell, you only need a preponderance of evidence. You don't even need a circumstantial. It doesn't even have to be direct evidence. It doesn't have to be an open and shut case. Okay. And but what we have here, and getting back to what I was going to say, is circumstantial evidence that there were tons of people, including a bunch, mostly Democrats at the time, who were very skeptical of these voting machines. And it was Diebold and Dominion and uh, others, but they were very skeptical of these voting machines back in 2006, and rightly so. 
because there were people coming forward saying that they were being asked, uh, developers, programmers, that they were being asked by some of these companies to write programs that could flip elections. So this was happening at the time. And lots of, even prominent Democrats by like Elizabeth Warren and Klobuchar right now who are running for president not long ago against Biden and who are, you know, there's been rumors that they might be in the cabinet, but I don't think they will be. These are prominent Democrats who just a couple of years ago were saying, we need to have these voting machines looked at. We need to be more skeptical of this. There's reason to think that they might uh, not be... Uh, that they might be nefarious, that they might be used for uh, fraud and so on. Even they were saying that not long ago. And of course, now they're saying, oh, no, no, it's fine. It's a conspiracy theory to think that fraud might be possible. And you can go and you can find those articles. You can find the white papers they they wrote or signed off on, uh, the the different um, investigations that they proposed to happen. You can look at the state of Texas and why they refused to work with Dominion voting because they said that the machines were completely insecure. But I'm not going to get into all that here. There, there's a, that's a whole rabbit hole. Let's move on to something else. Okay, the World Economic Forum and their great resets. You can look this up, okay? Go to the World Economic Forum's website. Read the books they've written on the Great Reset. Read the articles they've written about the Great Reset. But the New York Times had the audacity to come out and say it was a conspiracy theory the other day, which was really interesting. Yeah, just a conspiracy theory, even though the World Economic Forum's own website has dozens of documents about the Great Reset, and world leaders are talking about the Great Reset. I've been talking about it for a couple of years now. I knew that uh, there was a plan. This is not a secret. It's been around. There was a plan for an economic reset. That's what they call it, the economists and, and the uh, great financial leaders who are part of the World Economic Forum and Davos and so on and the Bilderberg Group. They've been talking about a great reset, a reset, a financial reset. And the only question was what was going to cause it? What would finally lead us to, uh, as, as a populace, to call for a great reset, to be willing to go along with some kind of reset of the world's economies. Well, uh, one of the ideas was that climate change would in some way be we used to kind of uh, reset the world economies uh, on a global scale, but that wasn't really working. Um, the argument for that wasn't being made well. And I don't mean whether or not climate change is real. I mean, to use that as an excuse for... Um, resetting the world economy at a global scale. And then COVID-19 came along. And then COVID-19 came along, and all of a sudden I started seeing um, some of these people in the World Economic Forum uh, talking about a great reset and that we needed it because of COVID-19. COVID-19 was bringing to bear the great need for uh, a global reset and was even uh, causing a catalyst to... Uh, um, issues like climate change and social injustices and so on in the world. Somehow COVID-19 was making all of this stuff worse. And maybe there's an argument to be made for that. That's not my point. My point is that that became, instead of each of those issues being used to, um, to propose an idea of a great reset, now COVID-19 was being used. And the only way you're going to get world populations, and by world populations, I mean... Not just the, you know typical mainstream people. I mean leaders in, in let's say the legislation. Le, I'm sorry, the legislature in the U.S. or even among the states, or people in the EU in Parliament. Okay, in order to get all those people to go along with that, you really need to convince them that we need the Great Reset because of some massive problem on an international scale. And COVID-19 really fits the bill. I mean, it really, if you can destroy the world economy through this virus, if this virus brings down the world economy to a point where, you know, we need some kind of massive worldwide reset of economic factors, perhaps a, a worldwide um, monetary reset and a worldwide um, stimulus, uh, that sort of thing, then it's quite possible that we could be looking at a worldwide uh, global economic reset. And who knows what that would look like exactly. But they have proposals. And the proposals have a lot to do with things that 
interestingly enough, don't seem to have a lot to do directly with um, COVID-19 at all. They have to do with a lot of other things. And I'm not going to get into the details of that. That's not the point. My point was to talk about and call out the New York Times for calling it, calling it a conspiracy theory when all you have to do is go to the World Economic Forum's website and you can see they've got a book on the subject. It's called The Great Reset and they've got papers written about it and they've been having um, interviews about it and everyone's talking about it. And then here's the New York Times calling it, calling it a conspiracy theory. Don't look into it, you know? Don't, don't look it up. Just uh, believe the New York Times. You know, they're the paper of record. They know what's going on. So I think I'm going to use for the first time a little soundbite that I have that I've never used and I've been waiting to use it. Maybe I did use it on a previous episode. I don't remember, but it's the fact check false soundbite. Here it is. Fact check false. That's for the New York Times. Fact check false. You got it wrong. Okay. It's false. It's BS. And frankly, that's for CNN too with their fact check. Fact check false. You got it wrong. Okay. Fact check false. And I need to come up with one about logic checking. You got logic checked, CNN. Okay, anyways, I want to talk about one more thing here. So let's trans, let's, let's use our little buttons here to, to... Fact check false. No, not that one. There we go. That's my transition to the next, to the next segment. Okay, we're going to talk about the, the election, but just, I don't want to get into, there's literally so much interesting data and information and evidence. I feel... It's hard for me to get into it because I'm kind of a perfectionist. I feel like if I can't, if I can't somehow summarize it all or make a huge five-hour show where I go through you know, dozens and dozens of pieces of uh, data and information and evidence, then it's not worth doing. You know, I kind of give up on the idea if it's not going to be perfect, which is problematic. So I need to kind of stop doing that and realize, you know what, I'm not going to let perfect be the enemy of the good you know, as they say. So I am going to talk about one story about the election here because I think it's really, it's statistically very difficult to argue against, and it's this. Okay, they're what are called the bellwether counties, 19 counties in the U.S. that always predict the presidential outcome in that if whoever wins the election always wins these counties, and whoever, uh, if they lose these counties, they lose the election. Okay. So there was, uh, as it turns out, Trump won 18 of these 19 counties. And so he should have won the election. That indicates that he had the support to win the election. And the track record of these bellwether counties um, has been 100% since 1980. So I think it's safe to say that this really should cause people to pause and say maybe there is something to the idea of a rigged election. So let me read this article. It says, Trump won 95% of bellwether counties, making Biden's win statistically improbable. Trump campaign official Steve Cortez crunches numbers on bellwether counties and the improbable nature of Biden's purported victory. In a video posted on Twitter on Thursday, Trump 2020 campaign senior advisor for, str for strategy, Steve Cortez took a deep dive into the 2020 election data regarding President Donald Trump's overwhelming dominant performance in the United States bellwether counties, adding to the statistical improbability of a Joe Biden electoral vi uh, victory. Quote, quoting from the video, Out of 3,000 counties in this country, there are 19 that have a perfect track record since 1980 of voting for the successful presidential candidate, Cortez noted. Quote, Donald Trump on November 3rd won 18 of these 19 counties. Could these bellwether counties really have gotten it wrong all, that, uh, all at the same time? Now, he also says, let's take a look at these individual counties, uh, and take a look at Vigo County in Indiana, which has only failed to vote for the projected winner once in over 100 years. Cortez noted that in 2008, Obama won this swing county in Indiana by 16%. This election, Donald Trump almost exactly flipped that even uh, by the number he won, he won it by 15%. Valencia County, New Mexico, has held a perfect track record in presidential elections since 1952. It's a majority Hispanic county in a working-class place, and in 2008, Obama won it by 8%. Again, like Vigo County, it flipped it almost exactly. In 2020, Donald Trump won it by 10%. So what we see here, and this happened last time when Trump won in 2016, he won these counties. So they've held true. 
this adds more, uh, this, by the way, is, um, it's not absolute proof. It's not eyewitness testimony of fraud or anything like that. But it's one of the many pieces of circumstantial evidence. And, and I could just mention some of those uh, for you. And, and I'll do that right now, but in a second. But this is just one of them that, to me, is, says a lot. Because this is not something, statistically, they are spot on, these bellwether counties. Whoever wins these counties wins the election. So it's very odd that Biden won having lost these counties. And the only reason Biden won really comes down to about six counties in the whole United States. Really, I think the number is like six counties where he just won so many votes in those counties. And it just so happens that those counties are are totally highly democratic controlled. And some of them are even known to have allegations of fraud in the past. So to me, it's highly suspect that he won, he won the election because of these few counties and the bellwether counties he lost, almost all of them. Now, I went ahead and pulled up some of the lists that I have of what I would call circumstantial evidence. And by the way, again, the cases that have been put forward by Sidney Powell, they really only have to rely on a preponderance of evidence, which is even considered a lower classification of proof than circumstantial evidence. And a lot of times there's this myth that circumstantial evidence is not considered very powerful or strong in court. That's actually not the case. Circumstantial evidence is... Um, is very powerful in court. In many cases, many criminal cases are won on circumstantial evidence alone. You can prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt with circumstantial evidence. But I pulled up some list here. Let me just go through some of these. In fact, I'm only going to go through one. And I'm only, I'm only going to go through one because I don't want to... Um, it's, it's really just too much, to be honest with you. So, we have many dead people voting... Okay, now some people, there's been some fact checks on that where they've pulled out, you know, a list of uh, th- over a thousand people who were um, allegedly having uh, died who voted. And the CNN or AP went and they looked at just a few of them and they found a few who weren't dead. And then they used that to suggest that that means the list. You know, it must not be true because we checked out, we found out of, they checked 50 and they found uh, two or three that weren't dead. As if that's an argument, they need to go to the whole list and prove that those people aren't dead. That's what needs to happen. You can't just go through 50 and say, well, 47 were dead, but these three we found weren't, as if that's some kind of argument. You know, still most of them, how did these dead people vote? You know, and maybe you can argue, well, we can't, ascertain whether or not these people are still alive for sure. We weren't able to find out. You know, sometimes people have the same names and whatnot. But it's, it's, there are cases where there are people who were born in the 1800s. They're registered as having been born in the 1800s, but they voted in this election somehow. You know, I'm not going to get into all those details, but ballots were destroyed intentionally. And this, by the way, is completely demonstrably true. There are videos on on YouTube of people burning piles of Donald Trump ballots. They take the Trump ballots, they lay them on the ground, put lighter fluid on them and burn them on fire and then mock Donald Trump. There were people destroying ballots. Ballots were separated from their envelopes, clearly with the intention of fraud. Ballots being separated from their envelopes, that's illegal. Vote counts were manipulated. Absentee ballots were received back at the counting center before they were even sent out which is interesting. There's, this is actually in some of the state's data, the actual data sets pulled from the state. It shows when these um, ballots were allegedly sent out. Some of them were sent out and then received back. So in other words, they were mailed out and then received back the same day, which is impossible. That's literally not impossible. It's literally not possible. It's, it's going to take them a day to go through the mail and then a day to get back at, at the very soonest. Um, But that happened with uh, tens of thousands of ballots, by the way. And there's, you can pull the data set yourself and look over it. And you can look at the dates in the data set. So there's this, that's just one of the issues where it's like tens of thousands of votes that apparently were 
sent out and received on the same exact day, which is absurd. And then there were some who were, they were received before. They were somehow marked as being received even before they were sent out. Many people over 100 years old cast ballots. I mentioned that already. Um, Then we have the issues of observers, in some cases mostly Republicans, but in some cases even Democrat observers being blocked, not allowed to see the vote counts. And then, of course, Late at night, they said, well, we're shutting down voting. We're not, we're done. We're done counting for the night, not shutting down voting, but shutting down counting for the night. Then all these people went home. And then what, lo and behold, they kept counting and all these ballots showed up in the middle of the, you know, 3, 4 a.m. And then all those ballots got counted. And we have big questions about those ballots because eyewitnesses said that they saw those ballots and they were all for Biden. And of course, that's what the data shows. The data shows that the batches that came in at three, four, five, six in the morning had these massive, massively high uh, percentages for Biden, you know, 90 plus percent for Biden. You know, so we should have healthy skepticism about that uh, for many reasons. And I've read some insanely good papers written by statisticians and mathematicians on the on the anomalies and the probabilities of all that but many people voted uh, more than once in multiple states ballots were cured or corrected even before the date that they were supposed to have been opened with the intention of fraud apparently batches of ballots were scanned multiple times into the tabulators ballots were lost in predominantly trump precincts lots of ballots there were they found um Hundreds of ballots on the side of the road in trash bags. Uh, so who was throwing ballots? And these are in, in Trump precincts. So this is a, these are precincts and counties where most of the people are Republicans. And so to th- if you're throwing away votes there, you're throwing away primarily Trump votes. And the list just goes on and on and on. And that's just a brief list of circumstantial evidence that we have that needs to be looked into. And... You know, I mean, some of it is backed up. Some there's citations and sources for all this stuff. Some of it's backed up by eyewitnesses. Some of it's backed up by just mathematics and probability, and so on. But there, there really is a lot of evidence to suggest fraud. And just buckle up, like I said before, because we're about to see that, that it's going to be very interesting to see what the courts say in the next couple of weeks. And by the way, one more thing about the election. I did write an article, um, pretty long one. I don't remember how long it is, but it's about five, 6,000 words. Over at the website, adamspeaking.com, it's uh, titled, The 2020 Election Results Are Totally Suspect, Logic Checking Jonathan Chates and the Partisan Fact Checkers on Electronic Voting. And towards the end of the, if you just want to get to the juicy part, um, not all the logic checking at the beginning, but you just want to get to the part about the election where I pull out the data sets from the New York Times that are the um, real-time data sets. So as the votes come in, it shows the uh, the ratio of votes from uh, Trump to Biden, which is, by the way, what's interesting is these voting machines, they don't count the actual votes. I won't get, I won't get exp- explain the details. Um, but what they do is they show the percentage between the two and then the vote totals, and then you have to figure out the votes yourself. You have to do the math, which is ridiculous because you can't really tell. Um, you can't know for sure, really, the the vote totals uh, for each candidate um, mathematically at that point. There's room for error there. And so the question becomes, well, is there enough room for error for them to move votes around? And I'll, I, you know, just throwing that out there. But I look at the data sets for Pennsylvania, Michigan, Georgia, um, and I believe Wisconsin as well, and they all have these anomalies where after Biden received those huge batches of votes that came in at three or four in the morning when voting or counting was supposed to be um, suspended until morning, these votes came in in the middle of the night, and after those big batches came in, which helped Biden catch up because they were 90% for Biden. Then after that, all the most of the batches that come in after that, and I mean most of them, uh, are all exact same ratios. So in other words, a new batch comes in and the ratio was exactly like um, 54.05 for Biden and 49 or you know 45 or whatever, some odd percent for Trump. 
And then the next batch would come in and it would be the same exact ratio. And then the next batch, and I'm talking dozens of batches that came in after that initial drop that caught Biden back up, all of these batches were the same. And then every once in a while you would see a batch that had another, you know, uh, a a variation, uh, a difference uh, ratio between the two candidates. But the rest of the batches were all the same ratio. And how does that, that's not even mathematically possible. What, how, that, that all of these different precincts were coming in, their votes were coming in, and they were all the exact same ratio of votes between the candidates? That's insane. It doesn't make any sense. And as far as I know, no one has answered that question. And I, you know, maybe they, they would say somehow, well, actually, I'm trying to think of a good argument. I'm trying to think of something that the Dominion voting machine or whoever it is, uh, something that they could use to defend themselves against that argument. Why are these ratios exactly the same in 20 or 30 batches that came in uh, after later that morning? And, and, and by the way, before those initial drops of Biden votes that got him caught up, there were um, dozens of batches that came in before that, and they were all, the ratios were big. You know, the differences were varied. It was, you know, in one precinct, you'd have 30% for Biden and 60, 70% for Trump, and then some leftover for third party candidates, that sort of thing. So you had these batches that would come in, and they were all different. And then, but then after that, those big drops came in early in the morning dozens of batches that came in. And by the way, that wasn't just in one state. That was in five different states that we see this um, example of the same exact ratio of votes between the candidates coming in after that initial big drop that caught Biden back up. So, you know, it's to me, I can't even think of an argument against that. I can't think of a defense. I can't think of any sort of logical argument that like maybe the machines needed to that doesn't. I, I literally cannot think of an argument for why that would make sense, and I haven't seen one either. I've been checking the fact-checking websites every day to see if any of them have dealt with that argument, and frankly, nobody has. And to me, that's one of the biggest things, and I wrote a big article about it. So check out the article at adamspeaking.com if you want to, or on, yeah, that's the easiest place to find the article. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop now. I'm already an hour in. It's already too much. I've talked about a few, you know, critical, I've deconstructed a few issues that I think were interesting to me in the last couple weeks. And now it's just, I need to keep dealing with one or two little stories every day uh, rather than um, trying to put together a big argument about the election, which is what I've been doing. And then hoping to share that with you. I'm I'm not, I'm scrapping that idea altogether. I'm not going to write. One of my friends said, you should write a book on it because easily, if I can do 5,000 words on an introduction, I can quite easily um, spill 50, 75,000 words to write a book on this already. But uh, it's just too much for me. So what I'm going to do instead is I'm just going to start doing the podcast more often with smaller chunks. Uh, Again, focusing mostly on logical fallacies used in the arguments by partisans, the press, and politicians. Okay, so with that, I'm going to say goodbye, and I'm going to remind you again to go out and find something true, good, and beautiful in life to focus on, because you're not going to find it in politics. So go out there and find it somewhere else. All the best. Peace.